0: Good evening, and very warm welcome to the Oxford Martin School. I'm Ian Golden, I'm the director of the school, and it's a particular pleasure this evening to be able to introduce myself. Uh, um, I'm gonna talk about uh, The Butterfly Defect, which is a book that was published by Princeton University Press about two months ago, uh, which really seeks to think about some of the unintended consequences of globalization. I've written a number of other books around other aspects of globalization. So I wrote Exceptional People, which is about migration. I wrote Globalization for Development, which is the policies that countries need to adopt in order to be more effective at developing uh, as open, integrated societies and I wrote Divided Nations, which is about global governance. So this is the fourth uh, in a series of books, and it's quite closely related to another book which was published um, recently called Is the Planet Full?, which I edited, which seeks to think about some of the adding up problems, and I'll touch on various aspects of these books, but focusing on the butterfly defect. The reason I I wrote this book was because I'm deeply concerned about globalization and its future. I believe that it has been the most powerful progressive force in the history of humanity, but I also believe that it now could be one of the most destructive forces that humanity has ever known. uh, And that many people already perceive that the harms that globalization brings outweigh the goods. The bads seem to overwhelm the goods. And what we see in the current politics, not least in the UK, is a desire to turn back globalization, to slam the doors closed again, to become more insular societies where we are better able to control our futures. So when people think about globalization, they don't think about the extraordinary benefits it's brought. But they think about the negatives it's bringing. Pandemics, financial crises, cyber attacks, terrorists and the unintended consequences of the successes it's brought. Climate change, resource depletion, antibiotic resistance and these other sorts of unintended consequences. And so I wrote the book trying to struggle with these ideas and come up with what I hope are a series of helpful contributions to how we can better manage globalization. For me, globalization is really defined as integration, openness, and connectiveness. Everyone defines globalization in his or her own way, uh, and it's a much abused term, not least in that people are often talking past each other when they talk about it but for me it's about connectivity. It's about societies which were previously more insulated, becoming more connected. Systems which were previously more insulated, insulated, becoming more connected. Cultures and views. It's primarily about the flow of ideas and uh, sitting here almost 25 years to the day since the Berlin Wall came down, For me, this really symbolizes what it's about. It's about walls coming down. Walls coming down around the world over the last 25 years or so. In a cascading process, which often has very unintended consequences. So I'm a South African. I grew up in South Africa and left, um, believing I would never go back in my lifetime because I had been very engaged in the struggle against apartheid, and I didn't want to spend my life in prison, and then suddenly, very soon after this wall came down, uh, President Mandela was released, and six months later I had dinner with him in Paris, and four years later he invited me to be his economic advisor and run the state bank in South Africa. What I thought at the time was the result of a very particular struggle of the South African people with international solidarity which led to democratization and change, I now with hindsight realize would not have happened if the Berlin Wall had not come down. If the changes that had started in Eastern Europe 25 years ago had not cascaded around the world, if the Cold War had not ended uh, and new possibilities opened up around the world. And so 65 countries have become democratic in that period since the Berlin Wall came down. And I've realized that things that happen on the other side of the world shape our futures in ways that we cannot begin to expect. And that for me is the nature of globalization, about cascading systemic change that comes from somewhere else, but because of our levels of new connectivity, impact on all of our lives, in new and unexpected ways. This process continues. We see it in the Arab Spring. We see it in the constant change. And what the Arab Spring highlights, I think, as do the events in Syria, in Iraq, in Egypt, and elsewhere, is that this is not simply about more and more connectedness and more and more openness. It's about more and more change. The pace of change accelerates. It's a roller coaster with very, very sharp turns and very uncertain outcomes. Now, another characteristic of this process is that it's been associated with an increase in the world's population of 2 billion people over the last 30 years or so. By far the most rapid population growth the world has ever known. And I believe that this has happened because the walls came down. Because ideas traveled, simple ideas like washing your hands prevents contagious diseases, smoking kills you, complicated ideas like new vaccines and new cures for cancer have spread around the world. And so we have collapsing, rapidly reducing infant mortality, rapidly increasing longevity and average life expectancy, increasing over this period by almost 20 years in the world. It took from the Stone Age to the 1970s to get an average increase of 20 years in life expectancy. So things happening in our lifetimes and even the young people in the room's lifetimes that simply are a scale and pace and spread that were unimaginable prior to these walls coming down. And that's why I believe that globalization is the most progressive force in the history of humanity. Because increased life expectancies, reduced poverty, and led to more people having longer, healthier lives than any previous force in history. And of course, the other characteristic of this time is it's not only about physical connectivity, it's also about virtual connectivity. And that's the same period of time, the last 25 years, of the internet and our new virtual connectivity. That was established at about the same time. So this interweaving of the world, this new system, this new network, the nervous system of the world, leads to the the most remarkable spreading of ideas, of potential, and the leapfrogging of ideas in ways that were impossible to imagine before. The combination of walls coming down, ideological walls, political walls, economic walls, and also the need for physical context. So a real change in the way that we connect. This is simply airline traffic depicted here with 10% compound growth per year over this period of time. There are lots of different ways to depict the changes. Because I'm an economist, I tend to look at financial flows. This is simply the left-hand panel showing the advanced economies, the right-hand panel developing countries. The blue lines are measures of restrictiveness and the red lines are measures of openness within societies. And you see this rapid decline in restrictiveness measures and rapid increase in openness measures. This is another way of looking at the same thing. And these are ODAs, aid flows, FDIs, foreign direct investment, remittances is what migrants send back, and portfolio investment is bond and equity flows. And the simple reason for putting this up, and these are all graphics that are in The Butterfly Defect, is to make the point that until about 1990, these flows were relatively stable, low, and flat. And since 1990, they've changed in orders of magnitude and in orders of instability. And that is the nature of globalization. It's about much more flowing, but much more unstable flowing as well across borders. So a most remarkable story, this is just another way of talking about the same thing. This is trade, movement of goods and products and services across borders. And you see this rapid rise in the 90s. And some of these countries, like red uh, depicted here, China, didn't even participate actively, really, in these markets prior to 1990. Now, together with this increased participation of more and more actors, there's also been a very rapid rise in complexity. And part of the challenge, part of the butterfly defect, is managing complexity. Managing more and more linkages in our lives, in our systems, in our products, in our goods and services. How do we manage growing complexity and how do we manage growing success? three and a half billion more middle-class consumers. When people come together, when they share ideas, when they share opportunities, they get wealthier. They escape poverty. And that's why, despite the world's population increasing by about two billion over the last 25 years or so, the number of desperately poor people living under a dollar a day has gone down by about 300 million. This has never happened in history before. Historically, as the number of people increased rapidly, so too did the number of desperately poor, even if their relative share declined. So we live in a most remarkable time. The red here is income growth exponential. The green is population growth arithmetic. And what you see is that population growth has never been that rapid, but so too has income growth, and income growth is even more rapid than population growth. There was a time about a thousand years ago when income growth also exceeded population growth, and that time, like this time, was a period of migration and interconnectedness. It was when Europe and Asia met each other. Ideas in what are now India and China were brought to Europe. It did not last. There's another time which I'm working on at the moment for another book about 500 years ago, which we think of as the Renaissance, a period triggered also by massive technological revolutions. That was the Gutenberg press. That did not last and had no long-term impact on the world. But this period we live in is different. This period of our lives is fundamentally different to any period before in the speed and pace of change, growth in population, and growth in incomes. Can it last? What's next? That's the question that we ask. And across the Oxford Martin School, we have over 300 people thinking about these what-next questions. But I'm thinking about it particularly in my own work in the context of globalization, connectivity, and the linkages that facilitate these new developments. And there are two things I worry about. The first is this. While the walls between societies have gone down, the walls within societies are going up. Inequality is increasing everywhere. The OECD data shows this and I believe it is because of globalization. It's because globalization provides extraordinary benefits for those that are there at the right time, at the right place, with the right skills, with the right attitude to be able to benefit. But for those that are not, because they're imprisoned in geography, in localities, by skills, or by mindsets, which do not allow them to benefit. They fall further and further behind. And inequality is also increasing because of this reason. Systemic risk is growing. And what we know is that risk affects poor people and poor countries much more than it affects those that have resources. It's the poor people that are always most vulnerable to risk because they live in the low lying valleys or because they have the worst nutrition and therefore their immune systems are not as well developed. Or they don't have the savings in their bank accounts to be able to withstand financial crises, etc. So poor people become poorer when you have more risk relative to those that are able to build resilience and have the means to resist. When we open our doors, wonderful things come through, new vaccinations, new nutrition, new ideas, new work opportunities, new technologies, many fantastic things that lead us to have longer, healthier lives and escape poverty, that lead the world to have more rapid innovation than any period in its history. That's the product of connectivity and it's provided those benefits of the slide that I showed you of the most rapid population growth and income growth the world has ever known. At the same time, the terrible things come through our doors as well. The shocks. So the question is how do we build pipes between our societies and only have good things coming down these pipes? How do we have airports that don't spread pandemics but only spread travel and tourism and good things? How do we have cyber lines that don't lead to cyber attacks? How do we have network financial systems that don't lead to financial collapse? How do we manage the systemic risks which are endemic in globalization? They are part and parcel of it. And just like in our own lives, as we get closer to people, we are more vulnerable to them. We are more vulnerable to them being nasty to us or having a problem. We feel affected so too it is for the whole world. As we get closer and more integrated, we become more vulnerable to what others do. And the richer we get, the more we affect others. If you're a poor peasant, what you do has very little impact on the rest of the world, what you eat, what you consume, how you do it. But as you get wealthier and more and more connected, What you do increasingly affects others and so part of the systemic risk is the tragedy of the commons, the growing tension between individual self-interest particularly incentivized by market forces which say the more we consume the better we are, the more we earn the better we are and the planet which has the opposite impression. So the question is can we all get wealthy? Can we imagine a world of seven billion people escaping poverty? Can we imagine a world where everyone climbs the same energy ladder that we've climbed? Does this add up? How does it work? And so part of what I've tried to do in The Butterfly Defect is think about these adding up problems. Think about the tensions between what's rational for individuals or even single countries and what's rational for the world. How does globalization add up? Can it add up in a way which is sustainable? And how can it be managed? So we move into this period which has been described as the anthropogene, where what we do as humans affect the world in ways that it was not affected before, that the shaping of it is our own doing. And the problem in thinking about this new period of hyperconnectivity integration, population growth, and wealth growth with growing inequality, is that the past is a very poor guide to the future. The data in understanding the risks arising from what we're doing cannot be drawn from historical precedent because the scale and pace of what's happening is simply unprecedented and the systems are far too complex. There's a very rich tradition in risk which I draw on when I think about this in looking at impact and its likelihood risk and probability. The problem is the long tail the unknown and uncertain. We move from a world of risk, by risk one means you can measure and assign a probability to an outcome to a world of uncertainty, unknown. We cannot assign those probabilities but we have to make decisions. It's certainly the case that humanity has experienced big surprises before arising often from early episodes of globalization. It's thought that a rat coming off a ship in 1348 into Liverpool Harbor caused a plague which might have killed half the British population. So the idea of Something foreign coming into our societies and killing us is not a new idea. But what's new is the pace and scale of the changes brought by our new levels of connectivity. The swine flu that starts in Mexico City going to 160 countries in six weeks. And the emerging infections group in the Oxford Martin School has modeled the spread of the swine flu and shown it exactly replicates airline traffic. So the super-spreaders of the goods of globalization, like Heathrow Airport and JFK and other great airports, become the super-spreaders of the bads, like a pandemic. Just in the same way that the nodes in finance, like Neiman Brothers, become the super-spreaders of the bads, or server farms become the super-spreaders of the bands. What we also need to appreciate is that rapid accelerations in innovation are spreading around the world due to this new level of hyperconnectivity associated with income growth, education growth, and the spreading of ideas. And this is wonderful. Technological progress will enhance all of our lives dramatically. And it particularly enhanced the lives of those that are still suffering from poverty and many, many other things that we have escaped. And yet all technologies are dual use. And so how one manages dual use technologies in highly integrated systems becomes a key question. In finance, it's what Warren Buffett called the weapons of mass destruction, credit derivatives, which became the source of instability in finance, even though they were designed to be the source of removal, of spreading of risk. So one of the technologies I worry about is DNA sequencing. DNA sequencing will dramatically improve all of our health care. I think even the National Health Service in the UK will be able to afford individualized DNA sequencing in the next decade or so. The cost now of a human sequence is about 500 pounds whereas previously 20 years ago it was about 2 billion pounds when Craig Venter, uh, who's on our board actually of the Oxford Mind School, first sequenced it. So it's declining exponentially in price and this is wonderful. It will individualize medicine. At the same time, this technology can be used by crazy people to build measles, or smallpox, or other biopathogens with de- exponentially declining lab costs. And so how does one have ubiquitous availability of sequencing that can facilitate all our life, all our, our health's improvement, at the same time, not be vulnerable to misuse of these technologies around the world? One of the things that's been facilitated by globalization is a decline in conflict between countries. Because countries now are more and more integrated, they're more and more interdependent, they have less and less incentive to destroy each other. China has $4 trillion of U.S. reserves. The last thing that China wants to do is destabilize the U.S. economy. It also has invested around the world. But the new actors are not nation states, there's groups like ISIS or groups like Wacko Texas. Small groups who are able to become viral, to create power, and to destabilize, and this is happening in many areas. Interestingly enough, the biggest threats to the banking system are not from the system itself, but from single individuals. Bering's Bank, which had, was established in the 1700s, was brought down by one trader, Nicholas Leeson. Societe Generale, one of the biggest banks in Europe, was almost brought down by one trader, Jerome Hevel. J.P. Morgan was almost brought down by one trader. UBS was almost brought down by one trader. So the power of individuals within systems, and it's said in the cybersphere that a very small number of individuals are causing most of the mayhem, maybe 100 or 200 to be able to destabilize is similarly a feature of this new hyper-connected system. So I think about this as pirates, as small groups who are able to strangle globalization, who are able to find the choke points and act on them for different reasons. Some are political, some are anarchic, some are personal gain, some are because their mother doesn't love them, some are because they believe in Armageddon, Different reasons, but all with very destabilizing outcomes. As the system develops exponentially, so more information now on the internet every day than was every year only 10 years ago, and exponential growth, these vulnerabilities become more and more acute. And as the system integrates into every aspect of our lives. Increasingly we move from simply the Internet of Communication to the Internet of Activities, our bank accounts, our front door locks, our vehicles. Everything will be hyperconnected. And increasingly as well, it'll come into our bodies. So we will have processes in our bodies that will enhance how we are. Trust and integrity in the system becomes more and more important as the cybersphere penetrates more and more dimensions of our life. You don't want anyone to open your bank account, your front door, crash your car into someone else, or worst of all, turn you off. (laughs) So how you manage this and how we have a system of extraordinary machine intelligence and capability But machine intelligence, which we're in control of, which is trusted and which has integrity, becomes important. And so one of the challenges we'll see is increasingly this one, where the fear of technologies is balanced with the possibilities. And we see it in our own lives. I live in North Oxford and the surest way to get an aggravated dinner party conversation is to start talking about GMOs or nuclear. In Germany, they've banned both. In the US and China, they embrace both. So this different attitude to technological change and what it can bring and how it may solve our problems becomes a key driver. It's not what technologies are available, it's what we think about them. It's how we embrace them or push them away and how we shape them to ensure that they are slaves rather than we the slaves to them. And with the internet, as the fiber of our lives, this becomes more and more important. The systemic connections are growing in all respects. And it's this issue of systems that really shapes the way that we think about and I believe will impact on the future of the planet. So we've known in Oxford for many, many hundreds of years this problem of the tragedy of the commons. There's nothing new in this. On Port Meadow, as the town got richer, there had to be increasing number of regulations about how many cattle people could put onto the meadow to stop the meadow's collapse. This is not a new problem. Village elders used to sort it out. And of course we've seen it at the North Atlantic Cod and we've seen it with many areas. The problem is we live in a global village and there are no village elders. So this is the tuna auction in Tokyo where this tuna sold for about a million pounds. This is the market's response to the scarcity of natural resources, and because we're giving more and more to the market and seeing it as the arbiter of choice, there's more and more danger arising from it. Of course, the. Tuna don't know how much they're worth. They don't reproduce more when they're worth more, nor do the rhinoceros, nor does the atmosphere, or the oceans, or the land. These are all what economists call inelastic supply. They don't respond to price. And so the question is, how do we have a world where already there are four billion consumers rapidly rising to six billion, possibly eight billion, all who want the things that we have taken? They all want their sushi and they all want their energy and they all want their antibiotics and they all want the other things that we have and they have a right to them too. But if they all have them, there will be no more sustainability. Now governments are not particularly smart at managing this either. Whereas the markets fail, so do governments. Six countries share their Aral Sea, each doing the right thing. Drawing water to feed their people, to irrigate their crops, collectively a disaster. Countries acting in their self-interest are unlikely to lead to sustained, collectively good outcomes. And of course, with climate change, we're going to have to, more dramatically than anything we've seen so far, get coordination and get change. There's a very clear economic relationship between economic growth and energy consumption and oil demand. And this is one that we've enjoyed. That's why we're here with the lights on because for 200 years we've been burning fossil fuels since our industrial revolution which was totally dependent on it. So we're in a situation where the rest of the world is rapidly climbing this curve and between about 3,000 and 6,000 pounds per capita, which is what 3 billion people around the world are transitioning over this coming decade. People maximize their conversion of income into energy demand and also food demand and others. Not because they're eating more food, but because the processing involved in the food is greater. They move from grains to chicken or fish to beef to packaged, to processed. And in each conversion up the chain, there's an almost exponential growth in the amount of energy and water that's associated with that transformation. Until you get down towards the other end of the scale and you get to where I am, eating my whole grains again, even if they come all the way from Latin America. That transition is one that the world is going through. And you see it with car ownership, you see it with energy consumption, and you see it on all things. And so as the world gets richer, it's going to be very, very difficult to stop, amongst other things, climate change. And we know what the IPCC has said. But whereas virtually all scientists, certainly all scientists I've ever met, believe that climate change is happening, getting people to change behavior, to change the way they do things seems to be much more difficult. The gap between knowledge and action. Getting people for example to reduce their emissions and we have to in the advanced economies reduce ours much more rapidly than the rest of the world because we've contributed a much greater part of the problem and because they have the right to climb this curve if they to escape poverty uh, energy, inefficiency, and simple lack of energy. Is the system going to provide the answers? My own concern is that the system is totally unfit for 21st century purpose, and this is the subject of both Divided Nations, my book, and also the Oxford Mountain Commission for Future Generations in our report now for the long term which tries to come up with creative solutions to these governance issues, which are not simply rearranging the furniture, minor reforms of a cosmetic nature largely, heading in the right direction but not scaled to the urgency or immensity of the challenges. So the system moving at best at evolutionary speed when the challenges generated by the butterfly defect are moving in much much more rapid ways. And part of the reason why the system is so incapable is again an unintended consequence of globalization. The unintended consequence is that the new powers are rising. China, India, Brazil, Russia, South Africa and other places are growing rapidly and asserting that the US or the U.S. with the U.K., or even with Europe and Japan, can no longer run the world. And the old powers don't want to run the world and are incapable of it anyway. The U.S. presidential candidates compete about how little they can say about foreign policy. And even when they say things, they don't have the money or the capacity to implement them, and no one wants them to anyway. So we're in this period of a power transition, a handover, A transition period which means that global leadership is particularly bankrupt. The institutions are unable to meet the challenge and the new technologies of connectivity while great at mobilizing and raising awareness are unable to effect change. We need to learn from the financial crisis. Finance is by far the most sophisticated of the global institutional structure. It has the best people in the wealthiest institutions at the national and global level, with the most data, and they're most joined up. Just think of the Bank of England and the Treasury in the UK compared to all other parts of the UK government, and think of, at the global level, the IMF and the World Bank compared to all other parts of the global institutional architecture, and you get the sense that finance is the most sophisticated and able of the system. About 1,000 people apply for every job at the IMF, all with PhDs. So it's a very competitive place. These people are not stupid, but they say stupid things. 100,000 people with PhDs who have a very clear mandate, which is financial stability, with all the data in the world, do not see the financial crisis coming. And so one has to think deeply about why, in the best of the systems, was there such a total failure to be able to do what they were meant to do. What is it with global governance where even the best are blind? I believe there are five reasons that we can point to. The first is the complete failure to understand the nature of interconnectivity, complexity, and the new system of the world. The second, which is related to this, is a complete governance failure. Countries trying to manage in a race to the bottom at the national level when the systems were hyper-interdependent. And so you had this farcical scene in the UK, for example, when Lehman Brothers collapsed, of the Bank of England Treasury not even knowing that they were overnighting all their money back to the U.S., the failure to understand technological change because the people that run governments and run regulators and sit in the IMF and the Bank of England and Treasury are not innovators or technical people. They're basically civil servants like me, mostly elderly white men in charge. They have no idea what the traders are doing on the trading floor. And the same is true of the audit committees and others that run the banks and other financial institutions. It's a total mismatch between the innovators... that those that are using the innovation and those that are seeking to understand it. And this happens in many areas. It happens in health systems and in other systems as well. The fourth failure was not too much data, too little data, but too much. They were blinded by the blizzard of data, unable to drink from this fire hydrant of information that was coming at them. All the information required to stop the financial crisis was available, they just didn't know where to look. And so this problem of hyperglobalization and management, of managing complexity, is about how to discern information, how to understand complex systems and be able to manage. Not with increasing complexity in regulation, and I think the Frank Dodd Act, which has 33,000 pages of regulation, as I talk about in The Butterfly Defect, is totally inappropriate in this respect. And the final lesson is that the race to the bottom in deregulation was a race to see who would collapse first. The system is operating on short-term basis where the incentives to everyone is to be short-term, to get a quick profit, to get a quick bonus, but not to worry about system stability and the adding up, and where things add up. So this tension between individual incentive and the collective outcome was manifest through a total inability to share collective concerns. The traders worrying about their bonuses, not the global system. The banks worrying about their profits, not the global system. And the regulators worrying about, and the politicians whether they'd have a job tomorrow, uh, whether they'd be re-elected and not caring about the stability in the long term. Now, the book, The Butterfly Defect, does not only look at finance. I look at the environment and ecology. I look at health systems. I look at supply chains. I look at infrastructure. And I look at social systems and inequality. Each have chapters devoted to them. And in the chapter on supply chains, I look at this fragmentation and outsourcing. These are just the suppliers to Apple for one of our iPhones, and the interdependencies that arise in these new systems, how we manage them, and how the ideas of lean management have become ubiquitous. This is just the word or the phrase, lean management citations uh, over time and how it's grown with globalization uh, around the world. But the same policies adopted in the UK or the US being adopted around the world. I look in some depth at the interdependencies in infrastructure, in transport systems, in other systems, and look at pandemics as well, and the impact of, for example, SARS on the interdependencies. I also look at the book in, in, in the book and how to try and think better about data. And one of the strong takeaways from the book is the understanding of complex systems. How to ensure that when you have this blizzard of data, you're able to work out what's important. This is an analysis which has been done in conjunction with the Bank of England on the growth of derivative trade in the lead up to the financial crisis with the panels being 85, 95, and 2005. The lines are derivative trades and the little dots turning into blobs. Our trading centers. And what you see is the uneven development of the structure and the hyperdependence on one Lehman Brothers. Now all of this information was available to those that pulled the plug and bankrupted Lehman Brothers. I believe if they'd had it they wouldn't have done it. So simple network analysis, understanding nodes and networks, understanding what competition policy, what regulatory policy will do but also understanding the importance of geography. we see a rapid rise, and this is from the chapter on ecology in the book, in disasters. I don't like this term, natural disaster, although it's used in the data, because nothing is natural in this world where we are creating new climate systems, etc. The interdependencies between nature and humans are greater and greater, but because there are more of us and we're more concentrated and more interdependencies, the cost of any one shock is much greater. So a hurricane in Wall Street has an impact now which it couldn't begun to have had even 40 years ago, or a flood in Thailand, or a tsunami in Japan, or any other activity. So geography becomes more and more and more important related to interdependency where things are and how they connect with others becomes more and more important and mapping that is part of what the book tries to do. I worry a lot in the book about the politics and consequences of all of this because my sense is that it's toxic, that it's leading to a vicious downward spiral in which people fear globalization. They fear the foreign. They fear these forces that come from beyond our borders. Be they climate change or pandemics or cyber attacks or terrorist attacks, financial crises, the bad things are coming. And so the response politically is to withdraw, to try and build walls around our societies but also withdraw from our institutions which connect us. UK talking about withdrawing from Europe. Scotland almost withdrew from the UK. There was an election, a bit an official one, in Catalonia a couple of days ago. And we see in the politics every day in the UK a desire to be, try and become an island again, try and recreate a myth about independence and us being able to control our own destinies. And I understand why, because I believe people feel it's out of control. The future is too uncertain, it's too complex. Let's try and pull it back and become local. Let's try and pull it back and establish a world where we can shape our own futures and others at the other side of the world will have less of an impact. And I think this is an entirely rational response and it has many elements which need to be thought about in it. But it's profoundly wrong in believing that we will shape our own futures more if we pull out if we disempower the institutions of coordination, if we disempower regional bodies, and if we coordinate less, not more, with others like China or whoever it might be. Because the past was not a good place to be. People had shorter, less healthy lives, more people were in poverty. And the risk is not only that if we stop this train moving that we don't let others get on who haven't yet got on, those that are still in poverty, the two billion people in the world who are yet to benefit from vaccinations and other benefits, and who st- are the most vulnerable from the unintended consequences of ours and others actions, but also because we can solve these problems if we work together. People's skepticism about their politicians' ability to deliver is rising rapidly. We see it in voter turnout, we see it in many ways. In the, movement away from belief in traditional parties. And in many ways I think citizens are right. When our politicians say to us, vote for me, I will safeguard your future, we know that they are necessarily not telling the full truth, because they cannot possibly safeguard our future. That is an impossible promise for anyone to make. Because the big drivers of change of our future will not come from within our borders. They'll come from somewhere else. They'll come from the systemic changes that are arising around the world and from our new interdependencies. They'll come from things that happen far off and then through a butterfly defect impact on us. So we need to learn to be much more connected but protected. We need to be able to live in a world where we can have these pipes between our societies where we can have this hyper-integration and ensure that it benefits an increasing number of people and that we build the resilience in order to be able to manage it. And that is the subject of the butterfly defect. Thank you very much. So we have about uh, 10 minutes for questions, if you may want to ask them, and then um, we'll have a a book signing, and we're also offering everyone a drink. Uh, Thank you, Clara. So uh, you'll have a chance also to to ask me questions informally. I should say that this is being uh, live webcast and recorded, so if you would not like to be uh, webcast or recorded, my strong advice to you would be not to put up your hand. Um, Gentlemen over here. Uh, thank you very much for the brilliant talk, Professor Golden. I would like to ask about your vision in terms of the capacity of international structures to somehow have an effect on the situation. You mentioned that you don't believe anybody could safeguard the future, but at the present day and age, we have lost uh, half the world's biodiversity over the course of the past forty years. There is Nowhere near uh, an agreement on climate change. Uh, there is a um, problem with water shortages in quite a lot of countries around the world. Uh, what's, what's the future? What can we do? We have to act on our knowledge. Um, the, and the Oxford Martin Commission for Future Generations was about that, but so too um, is, is my book Divided Nations. New ways of thinking about these things, including coalitions uh, of actors. The the response we have at the national level, which is to be more... to disempower global activities, is precisely the wrong response. I used to beat up on the global institutions, and I know them pretty well. I've spent a lot of my life in the UN system, in the World Bank system, et cetera, been to too many negotiations. And it's very easy to be very despondent and to beat up on them and I think they're in a particularly bad time at the moment with particularly weak leadership and particularly under-resourced. One of the reasons we have the Ebola crisis, by the way, we do, as Peter Piot explained here a couple of weeks ago, was because the WHO has been disempowered. But the same is happening on every other dimension of global governance. But it's us that does that. We allow second-rate leaders to be appointed to run these institutions. We starve them of resources, so the first thing. I read today in the paper that finally a, a fund has been raised to meet the threat of e- Ebola. You know, four months after uh, the, the pandemic has spread. Um, we starve them of resources, we starve them of leadership, we don't allow them to reform to reflect the new, man, the new mandate needs or the new political realities, and then we wonder why they're not effective. So in the end, the responsibility has to come back to us as national governments. Are we prepared to empower super sovereigns? I don't mean, I don't believe in global institutions for everything. I actually don't think climate change needs a global institution. Twelve countries account for 90% of emissions. Why do you need 202 countries to agree anything? You need them to agree because if you put these 12 countries in a room, you couldn't trust them. It's a bit like putting 12 banks in a room and asking them to reform the financial system you couldn't trust them. But if you put them in a room with Maldives and Bangladesh, maybe you could agree to what they agree to. So we need to get much better, not only at giving up our sovereignty to other bodies, decisions made by others, but also that you can't have everyone agreeing everything. You need constituencies of those that are prepared to act. Um, Cities become very important and other actors. So my own sense is we need to start at home. We need to get our governments to do the right thing. And then we can worry about others, what others are doing. And our cities, Oxford, wherever we are. Um, Clara, shall I leave this one to you, I think the woman over there? And then I'll leave it to you as to who's... Uh... We've only got five minutes, but um, I will have a, be having a drink afterwards, which I need, and I'm sure you need to after this very um, positive, I hope, <laughs> talk on the gloom of the world. <laughs> Thank you for such a great talk. Um, I was really, I'm, I'm interested in everything that you said and I think you had a great point, all great points. I'm a dementia scientist and so we've come to a point with Alzheimer's disease where the only path forward right now is with big data. And so I'm involved in a lot of international collaboration and so I'm trying to reconcile how we manage these international collaborations with big data while preventing some of the threats, and I was wondering what your ideas were on that. Yeah, well, I, I think that, um, your research is, for someone my age, your work is extremely important. <laughs> Younger people, hopefully, you know, you'll just harness the benefits, you don't have to worry about it, but I do. Um, so what did you say? <laughs> the, um, the big data challenges, I think, are vast. Um, of different types. We saw what happened to the climate scientists at East Anglia uh, when people access their data sources and emails so there's that sort of problem. There's obviously all the other uh, dimensions but I, my own sense is that people like you and people that are working in research collaborations are much more effective at managing it than the banks are for example uh, or the National Health Services for example. Um, so I haven't seen the sorts of breaches uh, generally, that have come from that. And I think that that's a sign of the scientists being able to more effectively manage it than citizens generally or politicians or bankers and others. Um, but one of the things we're learning in, in, the, in the Oxford Martin School is across. So, for example, dementia, big data, climate science, big data, financial system, big data, pandemics, big data, cosmology, big data. And one of the common threads is this extremely big data weak signal problem, which is why the group in the Oxman School working on citizen science and big data analysis, I think, is, is certainly worth looking at. Time for one quick question and a, and a quick response, and you have the mic and we'll have to have, catch each other afterwards. <laughs> I'm not sure it's a quick question, but the, or at least a quick answer. Um, you talked a lot about instabilities in the global system. Um, such as the collapse of Lehman Brothers and how that was preventable. But you've you've titled your book with a play on Ed Lorenz's Butterfly Effect, and as anyone working in physics or dynamical systems theory will tell you, uh, isn't the problem here really the fallacy that exponential growth is sustainable, whether that's in the financial system or indeed even more uncomfortably in, in perhaps the healthcare system? Um, and that if Lehman Brothers hadn't collapsed, well, the bubbles and imbalances would have grown even greater and something would have caused it to collapse sooner or later. So perhaps we need more instability triggered deliberately to prevent bubbles from ever growing. Yeah. Well, um, you know much more about Lorenz uh, and the butterfly effect uh, uh, than I do. Uh, this was just a play on words, it's not, I I didn't mean it to be too serious uh, in the Lorenz analogy, although there is some uh, relationship, obviously, to particularly his popularized stories around a hurricane flapping its wings, causing instability uh, on the other side of of the world, and also some of the chaos theory and complexity theory work that Lorenz um, engaged in. I don't think these patterns are exponential, actually. I mean, when we, maybe we use exponential uh, too lightly. Uh, some of them uh, are close to, like Moore's law, uh, but a lot of the population dynamics aren't. Uh, so a lot of people suggest that actually, many, well, many, more than half the countries in the world, populations are already uh, below replacement level. Uh, a lot of the food dynamics aren't. A lot of the energy dynamics aren't. It's about a certain period in history where we go through the perfect storm. From the conversion of incomes into energy, or food demand, or water demand, or pollutions. And over about $30,000 per capita, about say 20,000 pounds, people don't tend to pollute much more. I do, because I fly too much. But most people flatten off their pollutions. They don't eat, you don't just keep eating more food, you don't keep driving more, you don't have more clothes, you just put a brand on it uh, and pay 10 times as much for it, but that doesn't really damage the world. It gives someone a high level of intellectual property uh, return. So I'm, I'm optimistic that if we can manage, and this goes back in a way to this dementia story where I think there's a similar perfect storm with physical improvements in life expectancy but not mental capabilities that go along with them, if we can manage this perfect storm of the next 20 years or so and do it in an inclusive way in which the whole world escapes poverty. I can imagine a world in 2050 free of disease, many of the contagious diseases we know, and many of the terrible non-contagious diseases we know like cancer, free of poverty where the world is living in relative harmony at relatively high levels of income and where Improvements in the future about well-being, better music, better sport, enhancing life, etc. That's completely comprehensible to me as an outcome. It's managing this transition where you go from a world where only 1 billion people had what we had 25 years ago to a world where 7 growing to 9 billion people will hopefully have that over the next 20, 30 years that you get the perfect storm because of our incapacity to management. So I don't think it is exponential. I think it's manageable. I think the problem is, is in the end, a problem of understanding complex systems and managing them, and that comes back to interdependencies uh, and governance, which is the topic of the book. Now, before I um, close, let me just tell you about some future activities that are happening here at the Oxford Martin School. So on the 13th of November, that's Thursday, we have the continuation of our regular seminars on health in the 21st century. So this has been going now for a number of weeks. The next one is by Kasim Rahini um, and Professor Terry Dwyer on new strategies for disease prevention. So related to this topic I've just mentioned. 20th on eradicating hepatitis C uh, and so on. Then, um, on the 18th of November, Tuesday the 18th, we have a panel discussion here uh, on the book, Is the Planet Full?, where contributors to that volume will be participating, so that's Charles Godfrey on food, Sarah Harper on aging, Yadvinda Mali on tropical forests, Toby Ord on the ethics, and myself on the governance. And then, on the 19th of November, we have David Vines talking about Capital Failure, Restoring Trust in the Financial System. So do come back for other events. I'm sorry I haven't had time to get to all of your questions, but I hope that you're able to pursue them uh, through the book. I'll be doing a book signing out here, uh, and you're all welcome to a drink, and do feel free to stay, whether or not you're interested in the book. Thanks, good evening to you all.